Ian's going to come in and speak to us now. And uh, Ian, as you're setting up, let me pray for you. So, Father, I thank you. You're a God who speaks. And uh, now we ask you to, to, to speak through Ian. May his words be your words. May they touch our hearts. May we know you that little bit more. May we be encouraged. So, so bless Ian as he blesses us. Uh, use him for your glory. Uh, for we ask this in your name. Amen. works. Excellent. It did. Morning, saints and sinners. Well, <laughs> well, looking to everybody. Welcome to NBC, all of those of you here in real life. And hello to those of you joining us online or listening to the podcast. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Agnes. Uh, thank you, Chrissy for everything that we've done so far today. Now, as you've heard, we're continuing in our series about the people of Acts. This time it's the people of passion, and we're following Paul, as you know. Now, in the past, I think I've come close to Peter Farley for the longest sermon. I didn't quite pip him. 42 minutes. A couple of times, yeah. I think, I think he pipped me by about 30 seconds. Um, but this might be pushing him for his other record of the shortest um, ever sermon. <laughs> so, did I hear a hallelujah back there? No. Okay, I can always add an extra session if, we, uh, if it gets close. Okay, let's actually start the sermon, otherwise I won't be getting that shortest one, will I? Right, Paul is passionate, isn't he? We know that because he throws himself at things. He always seems so fired up and on a mission. That is, if he isn't recovering from the last mission, being beaten, tortured, shipwrecked, stoned, um, blinded by God, chased by a mob, he just gets up and goes again, doesn't he? It's absolutely incredible. So he's definitely a person of passion, isn't he? I'd say he's also got a large blessing of resilience as well, but that would probably be a different sermon. I remember my dad saying about Christians, born-again believers in particular, is that they smile a lot. I hope that's still true. They're joyful. But I think apostles and evangelists also have to be passionate, and I think we could all do with a bit of that as well, I think. Don't you think? You sort of have to be, I think, if you're going to be doing that, if you're going to be on mission, if you're going to be spreading the good news. Because not everybody's going to just say thanks very much. Now, there's a number of interesting things, I think, that come out of this story that Chris has just read us, that we've just read in Scripture. I'm only going to focus on one, maybe two, if you're lucky, you know me. Um, but I'm going to use it to model perhaps how we should spread the good news, how we should evangelize, because it's something that is a very tricky subject today, probably because it's been done badly in the past. But I also think there are parallels with our world, our culture, and the Athens of that time where Paul finds himself. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from this and also learn what to expect in reaction as well. So Paul has taken a break here in Athens. And while he's taking his break, he's doing his usual preaching to Jews and Gentiles in the synagogues, etc. 
um, but also in the marketplace. So there's a little, just dropped in there, but he's, as well as going to the, the synagogues and talking to people who understand what he's talking about, understand the scriptures he's going to refer to, he's actually out there with people who know nothing about this, who have no idea of where it fits in to the big picture. And then he's taken up this challenge, isn't he? He's challenged to go with a very different group and go and engage with them, this different people group from a different culture. Are you ready to do that? I think it takes real passion to do that. If you have that passion, like Paul, then you can. And I think it's also interesting here to look at how Paul changes his approach as he goes to this other group. I would suggest that you too could follow Paul's lead and note he does something very different to his normal style. This is a different Paul. But it makes sense, doesn't it? He's talking to a very different group. He's going to use a very different approach. Normally, he goes straight in and quotes the scriptures and gets straight into the theology in a very, you know, to a people who are steeped in Judaism. And this time, because he's hanging out with the Greeks, the Westerners, and the other foreigners, as it says, um, that he, has to, he obviously has to take a different approach. Now, when he's hanging out with these people, this, the, these people had loads of gods. They had so many different gods, as one commentator said, that you need a yellow pages to have listed them all. Now, if there's any young people here, they're probably thinking, what on earth are the yellow pages? Mm-hmm. That's, that's referring back now to a, a, um, a BG era, before Google. Um, for those of you that might know, I have to go and find a, a pre-millennial to ask them what it is. So just as that culture is certainly very different now, the pre- and post-Google culture, this culture is very different that we're talking about here. And actually, I think, you know, he's crossed over in the one city, he's crossed over from the Near East, this ancient Near Eastern culture, to um, a Greek, this Western Hellenistic culture, which is where ours comes from, right? Let's not be any doubt about it. This is our culture he's come into, very different from that Middle Eastern one. Because the roots of our Western philosophy are this ancient Greek one. And just like they had all these gods, we live in a society that's greedy to fill the God-shaped hole in our lives, in our culture. There is still that hole there. Just like Athens, where they had, so they had all those gods, but they still needed this unknown God. Because they know there's still a gap. Now we have our own idols today, don't we? Our society has so many idols. Because our society today, the people here today with us are still searching for that gap, to fill that gap. And whether it's money, power, influence, love, sex, fame, we have a myriad of them. But it's never enough. For those people, there is, no, there is not enough. They still have that gap. In fact, the other thing we've got in common with that society, I'd say, is that it's very individualistic. It's actually all about us. The, 
we actually, in, the, in, in our society, want things to serve us. We're not really looking to serve, which is something that I think, um, I suspect Paul would have noticed as soon as he crossed over that cultural divide, that would have hit him quite quickly. This week, in fact, I was shocked when a very clever person, a very successful person worth hundreds of millions of dollars, probably, um, mostly self-made in a very competitive area, started talking about Mars in his star sign or something at the start of a business meeting. My business partner and I were rather dumbfounded. Um, it's one of the rare times, actually, that he and I probably saw eye to eye on a spiritual matter, given that he's a hardened atheist, quite militant um, we were both quite shocked at that one. But I think before we judge, it's telling us something that there's a gap there. They are seeking something. They want answers and they have not found them. So what are we doing about it? Ask it. Sorry, get back to the sermon. Paul, of course, he's the man for this, isn't he? If you know your characters in the Bible, you know this is what he's called for. Imagine, if Peter and James and the others, they probably would have struggled a bit, wouldn't they, with this one? This wouldn't be so easy for them. This, uh, to a certain extent, with this new culture and this new people. Because although Paul, of course, is from the Pharisee tradition, was as strict as Jew as you can imagine, he is, of course, from Tarsus. He is a Roman citizen. He speaks Greek. And of course, most importantly of all, he is anointed by God for this very role. So this is it. He is the ideally suited. He is called to this. So that's another thing we can think about. What are we called for? What are you called to? And are you doing it? Now Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us he is conversing with the Stoics and Epicureans. I'm sure you all have a good idea what they are, don't you? Um, we use those terms, mm, not quite so accurately, but we use them today a lot. So the, they're the opposites. This is the big debate at the time in Greece. It's on one side you've got the Epicureans and the other side you've got the Stoics. So the Epicureans are all about following your passions and um, loving life and enjoying things as long as it's in moderation so you don't hurt yourself in the long run, but it is about the pursuit of happiness and pleasure. Whereas the Stoics are about clear logic, self-control, reason over passion, because passion can be irrational. These are the two big groups. This is the big debate that's been going on at that time for quite a while, actually, by this stage already. And so you can imagine, uh, they, this is why they thought, what on earth is this guy Paul talking about? He's not fitting in their boxes. You're meant to be on one of these sides. It's like people have, you know, it's like a, they're talking about Brexit and he's come down and start talking about something else. He says, well, it's not about that. That's not the most important issue. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? Who is this guy? So they take him to the um, Areopagus, or whatever it is, um, Mars Hill. Let's stick to the sort of Roman version. Um, and this is where all the big debates were held. So it's a hill, it's up there, they've been using it for centuries by this time already, and they used to use it for the big announcements and trials um, and debates, but by this time they're still using it for the big intellectual debates amongst themselves. 
It was a group of stone seats upon this hill. Now, when he gets there, I think this is interesting, he engages with them on their terms. He seeks a common understanding with them on a very tough subject. He does not go judge them. He does not condemn them. He doesn't go straight in with his view immediately either. He seeks to find something that they will all agree on. That way they can actually get given the time and actually perhaps engage with him in a positive manner. And I think when you're evangelizing, that's always really important. Don't go straight in battling and fighting. He does not judge them. Even though he does warn them about judgment in there. He doesn't change his his message. He doesn't dilute it. He just seeks the common ground first to engage with them in a positive manner. He warns them about this judgment. He, he, He doesn't just charge in and start fighting. And there's something perhaps we should all contemplate. Because it seems to me that copying the great evangelist, the Apostle Paul, might not be a bad place to start. He had quite a good track record. Now, Paul started his message by finding that common ground, starts where they agree, but he still does address the false beliefs that they had. He then used those beliefs, their way of looking at the world, as a way of presenting the gospel. Okay? It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, standing on the, uh, the Mars Hill, Paul tells them that he realized the Athenians were very religious. And he talks about seeing their many objects of worship, and then he says, and then you've got this altar to an unknown God. And he cleverly uses this as the opportunity to share about the one true God. He knows they want to fill the void in their lives, the gap not filled by all the idols. And so he tells them that this unknown God is the true biblical God, the creator of heaven and earth, who doesn't dwell in temples made with hands and so on. He tells them that God is the source of life for all nations, and that he really is the one they were seeking all along. And he also tells them that God is near to them. In fact, in him we live and move and have our being. The Greeks were unable to find the true God on their own, so God came searching for them. And then he calls all men to repent and accept Jesus Christ, who was raised for the dead and will judge the world, all of us, in righteousness. So he doesn't condemn them, but he still, in fact, he stands with them and tells them that the world will be judged. Now, to people, of course, who think that you who believe that you have to think or to be good or to work hard or to be clever to win heaven or enlightenment or paradise or whatever. This is going to be very different. This is going to be really probably quite offensive to people used to this hierarchy that they live in and probably were used to or maybe even wanted because they're probably at the top of it, right? This is very troubling. So, 
in his initial talk here, it would have made sense because he's using the right language, he's putting it in context for them. They would have made sense to this. So the philosophers would have been, yes, yes. Some one or the other groups would have liked different parts of it. But by the end, he would have been astounding both sides. And by the time he told them that Christ was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day, obviously some, as it says here, were scoffing. But a few believed and what Paul said, and it says they joined him. And others wanted a bit more information. Now, wondered about putting this bit in. A little bit of controversy here. Are you ready to be pushed a little bit? Just, just push our boundaries a little bit. So Alistair McGrath suggests that a deity who the Greeks had some implicit knowledge or intuitive awareness of is being made known to them by name and in full here. So it does seem there are many cases in the Bible where a knowledge of God, however limited, is presupposed. But we still need to seem we still need to we still seem to need revelation. So I'm not, you know, Jesus is still the only way, right? But there could be other examples of people knowing something. Sometimes it says through creation. Tony Campolo illustrates the story of Billy Graham uh, in China. So Billy Graham goes to some... Sorry. Here we go. Run out of talent there on the technology side. Um, So Billy Graham goes to see some uh, Buddhists in China in a a monastery. Um, Some of you may know this story. And... uh, um, He's seeing a, a monk deep in medita- meditation. And of course, um, you can guess what happens if it's Billy Graham there. The spirit moves Billy Graham to say, go and, go and talk to that, go and talk to that monk. So being the super evangelist of his, of his era, of course he did. And um, well, he was there and that's what he does, isn't it? And so using a translator, Billy Graham opens a scripture and explained the way of salvation. Put your hand up if you've heard this from Billy Graham personally. Come on, somebody must have heard it. All right, okay. Nobody here went to a Billy Graham. It's just, it's just an age thing, isn't it? All right. Okay, anyway, so he, so he you know, does his bit to, um, to this monk, and, the, and he can see tears coming down the monk's face. So it looks like the message is getting through, right? And so he says, he does as usual, are you willing to invite Jesus into your life right here and right now as we pray together, as Billy Graham did for hundreds of millions of people all over the world. The monk looked back at him, though, in dismay and said, accept him into my life. I would accept him, but you must understand that he is already in me. He has been in me for a long time. But I didn't know all the things about him that you have just told me. But this Jesus you've been telling me about is within me. And as you spoke, his spirit within me was confirming everything that you said. I believe in what you said because the spirit has convinced me that these things are true. I would accept him, except he's already within me. So this leaves a question open, which I think could be being referred to in this passage, that was Christ alive in that month before Billy Graham ever got there? Now, Paul's use of this statue of the unknown God, you could argue, allows for the possibility that God is active 
in the lives of people who do not yet even acknowledge God. Though no one has a complete picture of God, there is still a mystery there, isn't there? Even to us. Thankfully, the one true God is knowable. God makes himself known. So you got the question there, that is there a light from God in all of us that simply needs to be turned on? You probably would have said lit in the old days, but now probably with haptics, it's probably about pushing something on your phone. You could ask yourself, when did God become known to you? Do you think that you knew God before you were formally met, before you were formally introduced? Is God, therefore, at work in the lives of those who don't even know they're Christian yet? Formally. If so, what does that tell you about evangelism? About mission? Or rather, how we conduct it? Who are you giving the good news to? Who needs to hear it? And probably importantly, how? And for me, there's like one other important point I think that comes from this passage. And it was a sermon that some scholars revere as being awesome, concise, technically brilliant, and so on. To an audience hungry for philosophy and maybe another new God and the latest thinking. Yet, uh, you could also argue it got kind of mixed results. I mean, this is Paul, right? He didn't exactly turn the place upside down with this preaching. There's no riot. He didn't get arrested. He didn't change the city. He did change lives. But, you know, there was fruit. Some new people became believers, so there was fruit. But by Paul's standards, you know, to those of us used to scoring things, it's not really the results that we normally expect, is it? I mean, wait till you get to Corinth or Ephesus, and see what happened there. Generally, if there's a collection of writings from Paul in the Bible to those churches, obviously something pretty big had happened here. So I'm afraid my takeaway from this is that a great sermon is no guarantee of success. Because it's not really about the person doing the sermon. If the people aren't ready, if God hasn't prepared them, your sermon, no matter how technically brilliant it is, won't do it. I reckon that's my excuse anyway. To all of us who should be evangelizing or preaching or modeling the life of a mini Christ, it's actually a bit of a relief, isn't it? Doesn't it take the pressure away? It's not actually about you or your power or your proficiency. It's about God. Phew. You just have to be brave, committed, loving, obedient. You see what we're doing here, all the rest of the qualities in the series. Remember, act in love, but get stuck in. You need to be a person of passion as well. Are you?
Now maybe, maybe just pray and ask God to move you and we can't really uh, do any laying on our hands these days, but um, at the moment, not yet anyway. But maybe just let, we don't need that, do we? we? God can move. Let the Holy Spirit move amongst you now and nudge you and tell you what God's saying to you. Feel what God's saying to you now about that, about that passage. Whether you need that passion, bless you with that passion, anoint you with what your calling is. Or maybe tell you that there's that hole in your being. There's a hole in that in your life that only God can fill. But really this is, I think, that God bless you with that passion. Amen.